if you've, uh, if you've come here before, if you've been a regular attender or have uh, been here for the past several months, you will know that I have a tendency to preach kind of larger sections of Scripture, sometimes three, four, five, six, seven chapters uh, of a book, which is why I'm sure that uh, when you opened your bulletins this morning, uh, you thought there must have been a mistake. There's only like six verses here that we're going to study. How could that be? You know, I'm sure you thought we, we must be at least looking at two chapters. There's got to be an area. No, actually, um, we're just we're just looking at six verses this morning. It's true. I'm I'm sorry to disappoint you because I'm sure you are disappointed. Uh, but it's just six verses this morning, and in particular, we're studying Numbers chapter six, verses 22 through 27. And this passage of scripture, it's commonly called the Aaronic for uh, the the priest Aaron, the ironic blessing. Um, and as many of you know, we will um, occasionally use this benediction to conclude our services here uh, at Arlington Baptist Church. Um, but uh, I also often use this blessing in my prayers for many of you uh, and, and for others. Uh, those of you whose weddings I have officiated uh, may recognize this blessing. Just before I pronounced you as married, which is the part where uh, you all would kiss, uh, I would pray this blessing over you. Now, you might not remember that prayer because you were thinking about the next thing, uh, but I did pray this for you. Um, frankly, we're setting this small section of Scripture for somewhat selfish reasons for me. Um, I've never really been able to study this particular text of Scripture in as much depth as I wanted to. So I went ahead and just carved out these six verses uh, for us to consider and study together uh, this morning. Uh, I, was, I was deeply encouraged in studying this, this text throughout the course of the week. And I hope that you will be too as we look at this portion of God's Word together this morning. So if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on, on page 114. 114. And while you're turning there, uh, allow me to remind you what this book is about and what we've studied together so far. Numbers, it was uh, initially written and compiled about the 15th century B.C. by Moses. Uh, the, the name that we know the book by, Numbers, comes from the events in the opening chapters of the book where the people of Israel are numbered or listed. Uh, the Hebrew name of the book is In the Wilderness, which is fitting uh, because the book follows the people of Israel as they prepare to depart Mount Sinai and begin their journey through the wilderness with the intention of entering into uh, the promised land of Canaan. In chapters 1 and 2, we learn that God has been faithful to keep His promises to His people. He has kept His promises to Abraham that His offspring would multiply. In the first two chapters, we learned that there were over 600,000 men who were prepared to go to war for the people of Israel, uh, which meant that the nation was much larger. That number does not even include the women and, and children uh, and, and the tribe of the Levites. All told, the people of Israel at this point in their history probably numbers somewhere between 1 and 2 million people. Uh, God's faithfulness to make Abraham's offspring into a great nation should have strengthened the faith of the people of Israel. God's faithfulness to his people was also displayed in his, his presence with them. Setting the tribe of Levites aside, as we looked at in chapters 3 and 4, setting them as, as, aside underscored uh, this harrowing and happy reality. Uh, 
God gave the Levites lengthy, meticulous, detailed, and dangerous commands concerning their service. They were to minister at God's tents to guard it and even uh, pack it up and and unpack it uh, as they made their way on their journey. Uh, And God's faithfulness was impressed upon them. His holiness was impressed upon them through these instructions. Uh, Last week, we studied most of Numbers chapter 5. We studied all of Numbers chapter 5, most of Numbers chapter 6. And we continue to see God prepare His people for their journey through the wilderness. His faithfulness, the the reality of His presence, uh, His holiness was again impressed upon the people of Israel, particularly His holiness. Uh, God's holiness had reverberations in the life of the people of Israel. Through His command concerning the unclean, through the call to confession of sin, through the, the test for adultery, and through the Nazarite vow, we saw how God intended for all of Israel, not just the priests, but for all of Israel, to reflect His holy character. Just that small sampling of distinct matters in the life of the people of Israel revealed that they were to reflect the God who had called them uh, to be His people. God claimed these people for Himself. God's personal, gracious, and loving claim upon His people, upon the people of Israel, is made powerfully evident in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. So let's read those verses now. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, thus saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. These are our wonderfully encouraging verses. And how comforting they must have been to a people preparing to make a long and dangerous journey through the wilderness to Canaan. And we need to keep that context in mind as we look at these verses. We need to remember that these would be words that the people of God would carry with them in their hearts and minds as they carry their possessions, their homes, their tents, and God's tent, His home, through the desert. We're going to study these verses under three headings. The source, the substance, and the surety. What's the source of these blessings? What's the substance of these blessings? What are they all about? And how can we be sure that they're guaranteed to God's people? Well, let's begin with our first point, the source. And as we do, uh, let's read all of Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27 again. Numbers 6, 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. What is unmistakable about these verses is they are a poetic form of blessing. And this blessing has a source, and I'm sure you've already come to a conclusion about who that source is. I I wonder if you've noticed, though, that there is a primary and secondary source of this blessing. And I want us to begin by looking at the secondary source of this blessing, Aaron and his sons. Yes, the Lord is the primary source of 
these blessings, but that this blessing is pronounced and mediated through a secondary source, through Israel's priests, tells us something too. Verse 22 begins just as the previous sections of Numbers chapter 5 and 6 began. Each of the previous sections of Numbers chapter 5 and 6, if you were to kind of scan the beginnings of those sections, you would notice they begin with the words, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... That's the way Numbers chapter 5 opened there in verse 1. It's the way that the next section began in Numbers chapter 5 verse 4. And the section after that in Numbers chapter 5 verse 11. And the section after that, Numbers chapter 6 verse 1. Each of the previous sections began the exact same way. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. That's how each of those sections began. But that's not what verse 23 says, It is it? It, it? There's a difference there. No, instead of Moses speaking to all the people of Israel, he's now to turn to speak to a subset of people within Israel. He's to turn and speak to Aaron and his sons. And Aaron and his sons, the priests of Israel, are then to turn and offer this blessing on the Lord's behalf. So what's the point of mentioning that Aaron and his sons are the secondary source of this blessing? I think that it's important to remember that the priests in Israel were mediators of God's relationship with and to His people. That the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices and offerings to the priests to bless and praise God. And God would bring this word of blessing to His people in and through the priests. There was someone between God and His people. They were the priests. They served to mediate the relationship between God and His people. And keeping this in mind encourages us as we think about how much things have changed in and through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, there is now no longer a priestly class who manages our relationship with God. I don't manage your relationship with God. I may help you in it, but you don't gain access to God through me or through a priest. No, Jesus who is God in the flesh, is our great high priest. And we may go to him directly. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, we learn this about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest. He's referring to Jesus. We have such a great high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. See, Jesus is our great high priest. And He is the one who pronounces God's blessing over us. He is, in fact, the one who ensures God's blessing too. Aaron and his sons would only utter these words. It is God Himself who would have to ensure them. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, We all know who the primary source of blessing is. It is God Himself. And these verses are really actually emphatic about that in the language and the way they're constructed. Each time a blessing is mentioned, God is either directly mentioned or implied as its source. So in in verse 24, you'll see there, the Lord bless you. And it's actually implied grammatically that the Lord would keep them too. In verse uh, 25, the Lord make His face to shine upon you. And again, it's implied that the Lord... Uh, would be gracious to Israel. Verse 26, same thing. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. And once again, it's implied that the Lord be the one who would give them peace. And now take a look at verse 27 there. 
the end of verse 27, I, that's the Lord, I will bless them. Now the first readers of this book, they were not unintelligent. They didn't really need all that repetition, did they? Couldn't the priests just have said, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, without having to repeat the Lord's name so many times? They could have, but that wasn't the Lord's instruction. The Lord wanted his name repeated and subsequently implied. And I think that he had a reason for that. It's my sense the Lord gave this blessing to the priests in this form, with His name in it three times, and with His name implied three times for didactic and pedagogical purposes. The Lord wanted to teach the people of Israel. He wanted to teach them that He and He alone is the source of blessing. Sometimes we remember through repetition. And not only was repetition an aspect of, of ancient Hebrew poetry, but it's also a very useful way for virtually every culture and language to inculcate truth. The Lord wanted to teach the people of Israel that He and He alone is the source of blessing. Who else could bless them in this way? Who else could be gracious to them? Who else can give peace? The repetitive reminder that the Lord is the source of blessing reminds us that there is a danger lurking in the hearts of the people of Israel. Indeed, there's a danger lurking deep in our hearts, too. And that is the temptation to look elsewhere for blessing. As the people of Israel would, would make their way through the desert, through the wilderness, they would encounter people from different nations, offering different things to them. And they would be tempted to go astray after their false gods. The same temptation would be present as the people of Israel entered into the promised land of Canaan and encountered the nations living in that land. This is what all false gods and false religions hold out. They aren't really the source of blessing and so they try and imitate the one true God, the God of the Bible. Have you noticed that? How other religions try and borrow from God in order to try and mimic Him and set up Him and try and offer things to people. Well, there is no other source of blessing. There is only one true God. Before they begin their journey, God blesses His people and He makes it clear that He is the source of all blessing. You know, as we journey through the wilderness of this world, we need to remember that the false gods are all around us and they are offering themselves as the source of blessing, as the source of safety and security. The world, the world calls out to us and, and says that the source of blessing is wealth, uh, successful careers, the, the right education or, or some kind of uh, health, you know, having the, the right body type. We know the truth. There's never enough money. There's never enough wealth. It never satisfies. Every career comes to an end. Education does not result in infinite knowledge. And our bodies all break down. Whatever glimmers 
of blessing that might be found in the things that the world holds out to us is nothing more than fool's gold. They're all temporary. And the degree to which God gives any of those things to us on a temporary basis in this life, He never intends for us to ultimately look to them for safety and security and satisfaction. We must always remember, in the words of James 1.17, that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Any material blessing that the Lord is pleased to give us in this life, and He is pleased to give us material blessings in this life, any material blessing that He is pleased to give us, He means for those blessings to be reminders that He is the source of blessing. And that they, those blessings, are not to be worshipped, but He is to be worshipped. I've, I've heard the analogy before of like a, a mailman and receiving a letter in the mail. Right? You receive that letter from a friend who, and a loved one whom you care about. But you're not to worship the mailman who's delivered that letter. You're not to worship the letter. You don't love the mailman. You don't love the letter. You, you love the person who's sent you the letter. We love our God who has given us blessings and especially His words of comfort and love in the Bible. We worship God and we worship Him alone. He is the only source of blessing. And, and we, we must not forget that God is pleased to bless His people and that, that is good news. God actually does bless His people. But what do these blessings here in Numbers 6, uh, these verses consist of? Well, having considered the good news that God is the source of these wonderful blessings, we should consider the substance of these blessings. So let's turn now and consider our second point, the substance. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, I'm sure you've been, been thinking about what each of these blessings and promises mean. And this is what I really want us to zero in on now. Uh, though we are going to consider them, in one sense, individually, uh, we must remember they come to us as a totality, as a whole. The people of Israel were not simply to hear six distinct blessed promises in these blessings, but the, the comprehensive attitude, affection, and attention of the Lord toward them, His people. Though they would undoubtedly be comforted in one way or another by one or more of these six blessings, the force of them all as a unit should have left them marveling at God's care and concern for them. And it's my hope that the people of God today would, would recognize that His unchanging love for us is expressed in these blessings too. The Lord bless you, in verse 24, is not a response to someone in ancient Israel sneezing. No, something far more profound was taking place. When a priest uttered these words on behalf of God over his people, he was praying God's pronouncement of prosperity and abundance. Uh, those first hearing these words probably would have recalled God's promises to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 to 18, 
There we read, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, we as Christians, we we read this text. We remember what the New Testament writers have said about God's promises to Abraham and how they come to full fruition in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the nations are blessed. So we can see how uh, God's blessing for us as Christians is even resonant right here in seed form, bursting into full flower in the New Testament. And yet for the people of Israel reading this text, they have also remembered Abraham's promises and the mere thought of, of childbearing would have come to their minds too. The, the multiplication of the nation. That blessing God specifically mentions to Abraham. That would have been in view. And other forms of blessing would have been in view too. The blessings of a fruitful land would have been in view. Is that they had hopes of entering the promised land. Those blessings are described in, in Leviticus chapter 26 verses 3 through 14. In short, God's generosity, His blessing would have marked all of life. And it is perhaps found nowhere more clearly uh, than in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So keeping one finger here in number 6, because we're going to turn back here, keeping one finger here in number 6, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. So you're moving forward a little bit. Deuteronomy 28, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 168. 168. Deuteronomy 28 on page 168. And I want to read for us Deuteronomy 28. Verses 2 through 14. Verses 2 through 14. Remembering the blessings of God. Um, Here we read in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who will rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground. Within the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your land and its seasons. And to to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, be careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left, to go after the other gods to serve them. Now the nature of of the blessing that God is speaking about in number 6 is described here in in Deuteronomy 28. God is promising to mark the lives of His people with abundance and generosity. And we we kind of read that section, but the blessings, many of them are actually repeated twice. It's a double assurance that these things are are coming. So turning back to number 6 then, 
paired with the promise of blessing, this abundant promise of kind of all areas and aspects of life in the land will be marked by blessing. Paired with that promise, there's also the promise of keeping there in verse 24. And the idea of keeping is, uh, is captured well in the, the scripture memory work that uh, the kids and youth in our congregation did a couple of months ago in Psalm 121. There we read, I, I'm almost tempted to make you guys say it, but uh, let's read in Psalm 121, this is what the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hill, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The, the idea of keeping is the idea of, of guarding and protecting. Here God is, is promising to guard and protect His people. God has shown uh, His power and ability to do this in the past. These people, these people who are receiving the, the book of Numbers, hearing these words, these very people saw God's ability to keep them from harm when the waters of the Red Sea were crashing down upon the Egyptian army. God kept His people from harm. God is able to do precisely what He says here. He has done precisely what He says here. And He, he will do in the future what He says here. And again, let's just think about how comforting these, these first two promises alone would have been to the people of Israel as they made their way through a dangerous wilderness to Canaan. God was promising to, to bless them and to bless them in abundance in the promised land. That would have been an encouragement to keep marching, to make it there to the promised land. And the wilderness was difficult. The promise of keeping would have been a comfort too when, when enemies threatened them on the journey and when enemies were present in the land. We need to recognize that our God knows our path. He knew what lay ahead for His people. I wanted to reassure them that He was in control. That He would bless them and watch over them and keep them. Our God knows our path. He knows the comforts that we need to face the challenges on the way. He is not dispassionate towards us. No, He cares for us and He makes His care for us known. Children, youth, young adults. What would it be like to know such a great God was with you and for you? How would it change the way you entered new situations that might, might otherwise be scary and tempt you to fear? Uh, let me encourage you to talk with your parents or uh, another mature Christian uh, about how your help will come from the Lord. And why that would be, bring comfort, how he protects and keeps his people. I pray that you would be one of his people and know his protection and care. Talk with your parents or another Christian about what it means that God keeps and protects his people. And how you can have that too. That would be a great conversation to have with them this afternoon or this evening. More broadly, I want us to, to pause here and make sure that we all understand the nature of of the blessings that we've been talking about. We need to remember that the blessings that we've just read about from Deuteronomy 28 
uh, were given to a particular people at a particular place in redemptive history and for a particular reason. The material fruitfulness of the promised land of Canaan was a unique blessing that God promised to Israel. But here's the thing. The people of Israel still had to work the land in order to see such blessings manifest themselves in the land. They still had to toil and sweat. These blessings came through ordinary means. Now that they showed up in the land, everything was already done and fixed and there was nothing for them to do. No, they had work to do when they entered into the promised land. Not only that, the, the blessings of the land in ancient Israel were far different than the way in which we think about blessings. The promise of a fruitful land was a promise of life. See, God was promising to feed His people. In an agrarian society, one always has to wonder whether or not the land would produce a crop. Anxiety was kind of built into the task. But God was reassuring His people that He would provide for them. God was promising life. And with all of this in view, it's clear that we, as the New Testament people of God, cannot go around and flatly claim the promises of Old Testament prosperity to the people of Israel. What is more, the writers of the New Testament teach us that even those Old Testament promises of a fruitful land, of a glorious promised land, were paradigmatic, which, which pointed forward to the promised land of heaven. The, the earthly promised land's fruitfulness pointed forward to what the new heavens and the new earth would be like in glory. And surprisingly, even the Old Testament people of God had a sense of that. It's true that Abraham was journeying to an earthly city. But the book of Hebrews tells us that while he was journeying to that earthly city, he had hopes of a city much higher than an earthly city. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, he was really looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. If Abraham was looking forward to the blessings beyond this earth, then how much more should we be looking forward to the blessings beyond this earth? What is more, we also receive a New Testament promise of keeping. All of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, are, by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping and guarding us just like He kept and guarded the ancient people of Israel. We can rest in His eternal, blessed provision of salvation and His powerful protection unto salvation. God promises not only to bless and keep His people, but according to verse 25, you'll see there, He also promises to make His face to shine upon them and to be gracious to them. In fact, the, the couplet of verse 25 is almost a mere image of verse 26. I'm sure you notice that. God's face shining upon His people parallels with His countenance being lifted up, up, being lifted up upon His people. And God's being, grace, being gracious parallels with God's giving peace. Both of these verses, verses 25 and 26, express a kind benevolence from God. Just as verse 24 did. These terms, especially with regard to God's face shining and His countenance being, being lifted up, however, give us a sense of a, a positive pleasure and delight that God takes in His people. And we, we might be able to get kind of a better understanding of this, of God's, the idea of God's face shining upon His people. We consider the opposite idea. 
God turning His face away. When God turns His face away in the Scriptures, there's a sense of abandonment and darkness. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 17, the Lord warns Moses that if the people of Israel break the covenant, His anger will be kindled against them in that day. And God says, I will forsake them and hide my face from them. There is a forsakenness that accompanies the absence of God's shining face. Darkness in the Scriptures, especially in relation to God, carries with it the idea of judgment. And we can just think about the cross for a moment, can't we? When God turned His face away from His Son, darkness settled in over the land. Judgment was being displayed palpably there at the cross. Conversely, light in the Scriptures, especially into God's, in relation to God's face and accountants, carries with it the dawning of good news, salvation and favor from God. Uh, for, for a fun exercise, go, go back and read the resurrection accounts of Jesus and how often they mention light. It was, it was the dawn of the day. The sun was coming up. Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 31, verse 16. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. The, the dawning of light, God's shining face, reminds us of salvation. So it's not hard to see how, how grace and peace really go hand in hand with these these ideas of God's shining face and glorious countenance for grace is God's unmerited favor. And if that is the case, if grace is God's unmerited favor, and it is, if grace is God's unmerited favor, then the very idea of grace implies something, doesn't it? Favor isn't naturally there to begin with. The people of Israel do not deserve to receive this abundant benevolence and favor from God. There was nothing that they had done to earn God's favor and love. They weren't entitled to it by how they lived. It wasn't owed to them. Even from what we've already learned in the book of Numbers, we know that God is holy. And that the people of Israel were sinful. In Numbers chapter 5, we learned of commands concerning what should be done when one person sinned against another. In fact, in Numbers chapter 5 verse 6... You might notice we learned that sinning against another person constituted sinning against God too. When that took place, reconciliation and restitution between two individuals and God needed to be made. Sin strikes out against God. Sin is nothing less than rebellion against God. It is living our own way instead of His way. It is an attempt to dethrone Him. It's an attempt to degrade His glory. It's, it's an attempt to dismiss His authority over us. And it is an attempt to disavow His goodness. The people of Israel were sinners. We are sinners. They were not deserving of God's grace. And neither are we. In their sin, the people of Israel were deserving of God's wrath. And not His grace. Which means that they weren't at peace with God either. In their sin, they were at war with God. And this is why it's so amazing that God pledges not only to be gracious to them, but to, you notice that, to give them peace. The gift of peace, the gift which God gives, flows from His grace. And while peace can mean a sense of kind of serenity, calm confidence, 
No one can have that kind of peace without having peace with God. No one can have peace in the sense of having a restful heart and soul without having our souls reconciled to God and assured that He is no longer our adversary. Without being assured that we are no longer at war with God, we cannot have peace. Which is why I said, peace flows from God's grace. And it is a gift that He Himself gives. Friend, are you, are you a recipient of God's grace? Do, do you have peace with God? Or are you at war with God? Are you rebelling against Him and attempting to run away from Him and run your own life apart from Him? Perhaps you wonder, how can I receive God's grace? How can I have peace with God? Friend, I hope that you are asking those questions in your heart. And, and I want to try to answer uh, them for you. The, the, the Bible tells us that we come to know and receive God's grace through Jesus Christ. We come to have peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, we were all made in God's image. We were made to love Him and serve Him. But like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have all rebelled against God. And we've gone to war with God. Because of our sin and rebellion, we are in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sin forever in hell. But the good news is is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to secure grace and peace with God for us. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and He lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. He had perfect peace with God the Father. He never once sinned, and yet He died. He died the death of a wicked man upon the cross. He, He died the death of an enemy of God. God turned His face away from the one whom He had looked upon with joy and delight for all eternity. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to face for our sins. On the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days later, God caused His face to shine upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And He raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinners was acceptable in God's sight. The Father showed us that He was pleased with the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, in and through His resurrection from the dead. And now Jesus calls all of us to turn from our sins and to place our faith in Him, to believe that He lived the life that we should have lived but haven't. To believe that He died the death that we deserve. And as we put our faith in Christ, His righteousness is credited to our lives so that when God looks upon us, He is well pleased. As we believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, we are promised the blessings of eternal life, life in heaven with Jesus Christ. We receive this by grace. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' work gives us peace with God. He reconciles us to God. Dear friend, you need to know that you can receive God's grace and have peace with Him through Jesus Christ. So I urge you to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, to, to believe in Him, to have peace with God, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. And talk with them about the good news that through Jesus Christ, we can receive God's grace and have peace with Him. Christian brothers and sisters, let us rejoice that we have all of these promises here in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, in and through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We have the hope and blessing of eternal life because of Jesus. We have the certainty that He will keep and guard us because it does not depend upon our strength, but His. And how strong is our Savior. We have the certainty of grace and peace because of Him. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We must remember what we have in Christ, and we must live in light of it. Even though God is repeatedly identified as the source from whom all of these benevolent blessings flow, He personally reassures His people that He will give and apply these gracious gifts. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point, the surety. And as we do, uh, read verse 27 there. Numbers chapter 6, verse 27. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In a real sense, the blessing that Aaron and his sons would utter over the people of Israel was no mere wish. It was a divinely authorized proclamation of something that was and had already taken place. It was a divinely authorized application of this blessing and commitment of God's name upon His people. Through this pronouncement, God was setting His name upon His people. He was not only expressing His authority over them, but He was identifying them as belonging to Him. That's what naming in the Bible demonstrates and reveals. It reveals identity, belonging, and the exercise of care. Adam named Eve. She belonged to him. He identified her as his wife and a good gift from God. And Eve, through his name, came under his care. What is fascinating about verse 27 is that God didn't put a different name upon the people of Israel. He put His name upon the people of Israel. They were to reflect and display His character. They were His witness on earth to Him and His glory. They were His treasured possession under His care. And God, as we see at the end of verse 27, committed Himself to blessing His people. He said, I will bless them. God's blessing was not to be doubted because he, he backs the promise of His blessing with the certainty of His faithful character. We can be sure that His love will never fail because He will never fail. What He says He will do, He will do. And we have a testimony of that all throughout the scriptures, he makes promises and then he keeps them. That's the kind of God he is. 
That's the kind of assurance and surety that the people of Israel needed as they prepared to sojourn in the wilderness. In fact, it's the assurance that we as Christians need as we journey through the wilderness of this world. Christian, I wonder if you recognize that you, you bear the name of the triune God. As you come to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and express that faith in and through baptism, a biblical pronouncement is uttered over you. According to Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, when repentant sinners are baptized, they are baptized, what? Into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, not only is it proclaimed that you bear the name of the triune God, but the corporate body, the church who is receiving you in to membership is confirming that you do indeed bear the name of the triune God. You bear witness to Him. The fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. Your life gives testimony to the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. When a church baptizes a person, that church is corporately saying, yes, we believe that person bears the name of God. And we are delighted that they represent God to the world with us. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's marvel at this good news. That we, we belong to God. We are, are His treasured possession. In naming us, God has identified us as His. In naming us and blessing us with salvation in Jesus Christ, God says, you are mine. In, in naming and blessing us with salvation in Jesus Christ, God is promising to keep us to, to make His face to shine upon us and to remind us of His grace and that we have peace with Him. Christian, rejoice and be glad that God has called you by name and that He's given you His name. In fact, you, Christian, you actually continue to proclaim your name and your faith in Jesus Christ when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the work of the Lord Jesus Christ until He comes again. When we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are proclaiming that we believe that Jesus lived, died, and was raised for us. And we don't do it alone. We do it with a church body who reaffirms with us as we partake that we personally and individually bear the name of God. And they do so by allowing us to continue to partake of the Lord's Supper. The ordinances are not mere ceremonies. They are declarations and proclamations of identity, belonging, and God's gracious care. They are declarations on God's behalf, and they are proclamations concerning the grace and mercy of God. And who do we proclaim Jesus too in the ordinances to ourselves personally and individually to the church body whom we've gathered to worship with and to the watching world we are blessed in Jesus Christ not for keeping those blessings to ourselves 
but for bearing His name in the world. And this is where I want us to conclude. I want us to conclude by urging us to remember that God has blessed us and set His name upon us, not so that our names would be made great, but so that His name would be made great. And I want you to see this from Scripture. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find Psalm 67. Think on page 481. Psalm 67. Begin there in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Do you recognize those words? Where do those words come from? Those words come from Numbers 6 and the Aaronic blessing. The psalmist is invoking the Aaronic blessing and he recognizes something about that blessing. He recognizes the purpose of God, the purpose of God's blessing upon His people. He prays, may, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That, here comes the purpose, it's the purpose clause, that your way may be known on the earth. God blesses His people for His own glory. We are a display of His glory. And, and this display is meant for a worldwide audience. God blesses His people so that His saving power might be known among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Brothers and sisters, the abundance of God's eternal blessing upon your life in salvation through Jesus Christ are meant to display, announce, and proclaim His glory to the nations. So let's, with joy, having been named as His children, proclaim the greatness of our God and Father, our Savior. And let's proclaim the power of the Spirit with our lives and our lips so that His greatness may be known to all the earth. Let's pray together.